0: Civilization has graced the shores of the Indian subcontinent for the past 5,000 years. The original peoples of the subcontinent gave the world its first sewers, universities, and chessboards. They also gifted us the concepts of pi, Arabic numbers, and yoga. Their medical schools, the finest on the planet at the time, utilized more than 125 different surgical instruments to perform early versions of ultrasounds, limb replacement, and brain surgery. Despite all of this, some would boldly state that civilization only arrived on the shores of the subcontinent in 1608. That was the date that Captain William Hawkins of the East India Company stepped ashore, ready to impose European thoughts on South Asia. He likely didn't understand that most of those European thoughts had begun first as concepts developed in India. Hawkins didn't care about any of that, though. His only care in the world was making enough profit to please his company's shareholders. The colonization of India was about to begin. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the East India Company. Episode number two, The Seizing of Bengal. Clothing, or textiles as they're referred to in the history books, were the name of the game in India. The subcontinent was so critical to the industry that words such as shawl, pajamas, and khaki all have origins from this region. Many students mistakenly assume that the balance of power swung the Europeans' way. But India was already established as a global power— By the 17th century, India was already home to one-fifth of the world's population. That is almost identical to current-day projections for the world's most populated country. The territory wasn't yet consolidated, but the Mughal Empire laid claim to the title of the most powerful kingdom in the area. They should have known that the West would eventually come for them, as the word Mughal, denoting someone of extreme wealth, is derived directly from their dynasty. And they weren't a pushover by any means. In 1632, their army, made up of four million men-at-arms, destroyed unauthorized Portuguese fortifications that had popped up on the edge of their lands. Hawkins knew this part of history, and upon arrival immediately set off in pursuit of an audience with the Mughal emperor Jahangir. The journey to India had taken him a full year. It was a journey that involved crossing unfamiliar terrain disguised as Afghan noblemen. When the two leaders finally met, they discussed a partnership in Turkey, but it was denied. Oddly enough, Hawkins left the meeting with an Armenian Christian wife that he hadn't asked for. Utilizing the East India Company's connections to the crown, Hawkins brought in the reserves. Sir Thomas Rowe served as the royal envoy. He brought with him English mastiffs and Irish greyhounds, an English harpsichord, and quite a few crates of red wine. Still, nothing was conceded. But historian William Dalrymple notes that for all its clumsiness, Roe's mission was the beginning of a Mughal-company relationship that would develop into something approaching a partnership and see the EIC gradually drawn into the Mughal nexus. Over the next 200 years, it would slowly learn to operate skillfully within the Mughal system and to do so in the Mughal idiom, with its officials learning good Persian the correct court etiquette, the art of bribing the right officials, and in time, outmaneuvering all their rivals for imperial favor. Jahangir was the middle of six consecutive influential Mughal leaders, each of whom was directly descended from Babur. The children of Babur tended to be highly intelligent, strong supporters of the arts, and lovers of alcohol. That last one isn't necessarily a good thing, as the second emperor died tripping over his drunken feet while exiting from one of his many spectacular libraries. Two of the emperor's brothers had also drunk themselves to death, but Jahangir was a survivor, perhaps in large part to the fact that he kept a court official on the staff despite the fact that the man's only job was to properly administer his drugs. His son is best known for creating the Taj Mahal as a tribute to his wife who passed away during childbirth. This little tidbit tells one significant thing, namely that the decline of the Mughals did not immediately correspond with the arrival of the East India Company. Likewise, the EIC had nothing to do with the creation of the seventh wonder of the world, but it did attempt to dismantle it at one point in order to raise much needed funds for corporate expansion. But that is a story for another episode. Having achieved tacit levels of approval, the company began working along the margins of the Mughal Empire, working in the gray areas near the sea. Rather than trying to establish their own port, They merely hung around offshore, conducting small deals for jewels, peppers, and textiles. The profits earned more than made up for the substantial risk involved, which included losing 64 out of 168 vessels that the company sent to the subcontinent. The profits were so consistent that the citizens of England began to line up in the street in order to purchase shares for the company. The second round of shares put out in 1617 delivered 1.6 million pounds for the startup company, three times what they had raised just four years earlier. It was during this early period that the ledgers of the IC and the government of England began to become increasingly intertwined. A constant presence now. The company established its first base in India in 1626, but abandoned it just four years later beneath concerns that it was geographically indefensible. Two years later, they established a fort nearby a small fishing village named Madrasapante. The location, known as Madras, flourished. But that wasn't because of outstanding business acumen as the location had been chosen so that the head of a factory that produced EIC goods, Francis Day, could be closer to his mistress. The deal negotiated was sweet for the EIC's bottom line, as they were granted a 30-year deal which excluded the company from paying all custom duties. Romance played a part in their second Indian holding as well. In 1661, King Charles II married a Portuguese princess, and received the Indian island of Bumbray as a part of the dowry. Listeners probably know the name of Charles II. He, like all English kings to have borne his name, lives on in infamy within the pages of history. He was a degenerate gambler who racked up enough debts that he was forced to continually pester Parliament for more money. He became so insistent that Oliver Cromwell rose up and led a civil war to remove him from power. Cromwell's subsequent regime failed so spectacularly that Charles was eventually restored to the throne, shaping up his act to a small extent. Yet his failure to produce a child with his wife resulted in his brother James taking the crown next. I'm not sure how many objections came from the 12 illegitimate children that Charles had produced. The island of Bumbré was a bit of a mystery, as at least one of Charles's staff believed that it was located somewhere near Brazil. The queen wasn't even aware of its location, as the map showing its whereabouts had been lost on the journey to the altar. They eventually figured it out, And three years later, English troops arrived in the archipelago that we now know as Bombay. Boasting the best natural harbor in South Asia, the city expanded rapidly. Within 30 years, it had become the company's colonial headquarters, replete with a network of factories. The locals didn't take to the invaders in the same way that the citizens of Madras had, The installation of Anglican churches, white traditional English houses, and the appearance of 60,000 colonists were among the things that upset the locals. One EIC official explains the disagreement in easy-to-understand terms, writing that their private whorings, drunkenness, and such-like riots, breaking open whorehouses and bars, have hardened the hearts of the inhabitants against our very names. In the local tongue, the Brits were referred to as Betty and Ban Chud, which I'm told is a very aggressive way of saying that they slept with their sisters and daughters. Despite the local outrage, Bombay would only continue to grow in importance, eclipsing Madras as the company headquarters by 1680. Their control over two small cities allows us to introduce the concept of the Thucydides Trap. The reference is most commonly used to describe the likelihood of a war between the United States, the current established hegemon, and the People's Republic of China, the world's rising power. Thucydides, a Greek historian, wrote the definitive version of the Peloponnesian Wars between Sparta, an established power, and Athens a rising power. According to his theory, which has been proven consistent over multiple eras, the dominant power will always clash with the rising power in order to maintain their hegemony. In 1681, the Mughals were dominant, extending their control over the subcontinent, nearly bringing the entirety of it into their empire. The same year, a minor ruler insulted the EIC, which was currently controlled locally by Josiah Child, who had begun his career peddling beer to members of the Royal Navy. Rather than turning the other cheek, he took the public insult in the worst way possible, leaving himself and the company little wiggle room against the superior Mughals. He dramatically claimed to the shareholders' court that we have no remedy left, but either to desert our trade, or we must draw the sword His Majesty has entrusted us with to vindicate the rights and honor of the English nation in India." The two sides went tit for tat during the next few years, but the situation escalated in 1686, when England sent a fleet of 19 warships loaded with 200 cannons and 600 soldiers. Child was quite pleased and upon the fleet's arrival noted that it will become us to seize what we can and draw the English swords. But the reinforcements were, to paraphrase the Rolling Stones, neither what they wanted nor what they needed, as Dalrymple notes that the Mughal war machine swept away the English landing parties as easily as if it were swatting flies. Soon the EIC factories at Hugli, Patna, Kasimbasa, Musatnatam, and Visagapan had all been seized and plundered, and the English had been expelled completely from Bengal. The Surat factory was closed, and Bombay was blockaded. Amazingly, the company was able to sue for peace and regained a number of their holdings in the process. If there's one thing the capitalists count on, it is that humans act in their own self-interest. And at this point, the EIC remained beneficial to India's bottom line. They didn't receive all of their factories back, however. So in 1690, the company purchased a swampy patch of land that was described by the Scottish Alexander Hamilton the one without a massive Broadway musical about his life, as for the sake of a large shady tree could he not have found a more unhealthful place on all the river. That settlement would go on to become the modern-day megacity of Calcutta, now the seventh most populous city in the world. Turning it into a prosperous settlement literally cost lives, with Hamilton noting that so many died there that it has become a saying that they live like Englishmen and die like rotten sheep. The sweetheart deal that the company received wasn't just because the Mughals were kind or naive. Emperor Aurangzeb was the man who had spoken down to Josiah Child. He was the sixth emperor of the Mughal Empire and expanded the dynasty's holdings to its largest extent. He was a warrior earning the nickname of the Brave from his father after he narrowly escaped a trampling via an opponent's war elephant by grabbing a hold of the beast's leg and holding on until he slew it. In the same year that he had insulted Child, he captured the eldest son of one of his rivals. This man, who represented the Hindu resistance to what would end up as 500 years of Islamic rule, was brutally tortured to death. The descriptions are horrific, which of course means that I'm going to share them, as the Hindu leader had his eyes stabbed out with nails, his tongue cut out and his skin flayed with tiger claws, before his soul was mercifully released. The torture wasn't enough for an opponent of the emperor, however, as the man's body was fed to dogs. Only his severed head was preserved. For that, Aurangzeb stuffed it with straw and sent it on tour around the cities of India as a warning to those who opposed his rule and his Islamic faith. By contrast, Josiah Childs didn't even lose his job for challenging the Mughal ruler's actions. The Emperor lived to the age of 88 dying in a military camp set up for his campaign of the Deccan, a triangular plateau that rises out of the eastern and western Ghat Mountains. He devoted the final 26 years of his life to the conquest of the semi-arid plateau, which still remains to this day sparsely populated. Historian Josh Gomans points out that the high point of imperial centralization under Emperor Aurangzeb coincided with the start of the imperial downfall. To an extent, it was the emperor's fault. As Professor Stanley Wolpert noted when he wrote that, the conquest of the Deccan was a pyrrhic victory, costing an estimated 100,000 lives a year during its last decade of fruitless chess game warfare. The expense in gold and rupees can hardly be imagined or accurately estimated. Alam Gir's moving capital alone cost a fortune, for it was a city of tents 30 miles in circumference, 250 bazaars, with half a million camp followers. 50,000 camels and 30,000 elephants, all of whom had to be fed, stripped the peninsular India of any and all of its surplus grain and wealth. Not only famine, but bubonic plague arose— Even Al-Lumgir had ceased to understand the purpose for it all by 1705, confessing to his son that I came alone and I go as a stranger. I do not know who I am, nor what I've been doing. Every good business knows to pounce the second that their competitor is suffering— Rampant lawlessness, a rebellion by his son, and military overstretch meant that for the first time in the history of the Mughal Empire, bills were going unpaid. Dalrymple tells us that in the years that followed his death, the authority of the Mughal state began to dissolve. Mughal succession disputes and a string of weak and powerless emperors exacerbated the sense of imperial crisis. Three emperors were murdered. In addition to another being blinded by a hot needle and the mother of one ruler being strangled and the father of another forced off a precipice on his elephant. In the worst year of all, 1719, four different emperors occupied the peacock throne in rapid succession. The Hindu Marathas, known for their guerrilla tactics, steadily created their own kingdom carved out of the disintegrating Mughal lands. As the central government was distracted by the onslaught from within, the regional governments were transformed into semi-autonomous fiefdoms that were largely left to fend for themselves. Bengal was one of the last supporters of the Delhi government consistently maintaining its flow of tax revenue to the capital. To those who openly questioned the worthiness of paying the required tax, the governor of Bengal ordered them to be stripped naked in the winter, tied to a pole, and then doused with cold water. But that wasn't the end of it, as the next step in the process involved the prisoner being hoisted upside down and beaten with a stick before they were discarded into a pit of human excrement. But the single greatest punishment that he imagined, and one that I would like to bring back, was to force the man to wear an oversized pair of leather trousers, filled to the brim with angry cats. Outraged at such harsh treatment, relations between the EIC, whose headquarters were in Bengal and the government disintegrated, After the government seized two Englishmen, the EIC lost it completely and laid waste to 52 towns and villages along the coast. The violence was extensive, but unlike 1686, there was no response from the central government. That failure wasn't for lack of trying from the local government, which wrote to the emperor that, I am scarce able to recount to you the abominable practices of these people. When they first came to this country, they petitioned the then-government in a humble manner for the liberty to purchase a spot of ground to build a factory house upon, which was no sooner granted, but they ran up a strong fort, surrounded it with a ditch which has communication with the river, and mounted a great number of guns upon the walls. They have enticed several merchants and others to go and take protection under them And they collect a revenue which amounts to one hundred thousand, more than one million in today's currency. He finished his plea for help with the ominous statement that they rob and plunder and carry a great number of the king's subjects of both sexes into slavery. In short, predatory capitalism had already entrenched itself within the subcontinent. Mohammed Shah was the Mughal ruler currently sitting on the peacock throne. He wasn't blessed with a cool nickname such as the Brave, having earned instead the moniker of the Merrymaker. Dalrymple tells us that Mohammed Shah somehow managed to survive in power by the simple ruse of giving up any appearance of ruling. In the morning, he watched partridge and elephant fights. In the afternoon he was entertained by jugglers, mime artists and conjurors. Politics he wisely left to his advisors and regents. And as his reign progressed power ebbed gently away from Delhi. Worse a new Persian emperor had decided to quote pluck some golden feathers from the Mughal peacock and had invaded via Afghanistan. It was the first time in more than two centuries that someone had the audacity to invade the subcontinent. After the Persians' first victory, the usurper decided to invite Mohammed the Merrymaker over for dinner. The imbecile emperor, as one French contemporary deemed him, went, and was instantly turned into a captive. The Persians' boldness grew from there, as more than 100,000 were killed when the enemy marched on Delhi, with it being said to be as though it were raining blood. The Mughal general was ordered to pay the ransom of over 1 billion rupees, the equivalent of 13 billion pounds today. But when it couldn't be found in the treasury, the general was forced to loot his own city or at least the part that hadn't been consumed within the eight consecutive days during which fires had raged unabated. Dalrymple notes that the violence was so extensive that whole families were ruined. Many swallowed poison, and others ended their days with the stab of a knife. In short, the accumulated wealth of 348 years changed masters in a moment. It truly appeared as though, in the words of the Persian invader, that the Mughal Empire is at an end, and the Persian has begun. The usurpers didn't even leave the Peacock Throne, taking it with them in order to fund further wars against the Russians and Ottomans. India shattered and fragmented in the wake, as though it were a mirror thrown from a window. Dalrymple reveals that in the aftermath of the invasion, India became a decentralized and disjointed, but profoundly militarized society. The EIC were bystanders to what was happening 900 miles from their base in Calcutta, William Boltz, a writer for the EIC, claimed that seeing a handful of Persians take Delhi with such ease spurred the Europeans' dreams of conquests and empire in India. In other words, the Persians had shown them what was possible. But first, the company had to deal with the French, who had set up a rival company nearby. They hadn't yet established as good of a foothold as the EIC, as they had arrived eight years after the Brits. When the War of Australian Succession placed the two Western European powers on opposite sides, the French company brought the conflict to India's shores and attacked EIC holdings. They were reinforced by 4,000 highly trained African slave troops. The first siege was a rout with many of the 300 local defenders switching sides within the first three days. However, the French ran afoul of the local government, for having failed to alert them of what the French had considered to be a European problem. A confrontation ensured along the Adyar River, where the modern tactics of the French resulted in only two casualties— while the Mughals' forces lost in excess of 300. The difference in capabilities were so profound that the French commander was told that 1,000 French soldiers with cannons and mines could conquer all of South India. His response was that he only needed 500 soldiers armed with two cannons. Having suffered at the hands of their ancient enemy, The English Parliament authorized the EIC to make themselves as secure as possible against the French or any other European enemy. They also made clear that His Majesty will support the company in whatever they may think fit to do for their future security. The result was the permanent shifting of the East India Company from a group of merchants to mercenaries. the French commander began the process of privatizing a portion of his forces after realizing that his nearly invincible army could make far more profit selling their services as private military contractors to rival groups in the spiraling decentralized country. The EIC immediately followed suit as a counterbalancing force. Thus, one side would hire the French to conquer their neighbors, who then would pay the English for their defense. Soon, large blocks of territory or land revenue was being transferred from the locals to the foreign companies in what became known as the Carnatic Wars. There's a lot of money to be made within the world of private military contracting, which is the 21st century way of describing mercenaries. In 2023, the Wagner Group briefly turned on Russia's Vladimir Putin. The fear caused by the betrayal was real, as the path to Moscow had been left wide open after the Red Army's losses in Ukraine had left them stretched far too thin. Alas, the leader of the Wagner Group turned back before attempting to take the crown, only to have mysteriously died aboard a flight that was taken down by Russia's missiles a few months later. The Europeans' tactical superiority made their actions extremely low risk. In fact, there was a significantly lower chance of a European dying in the Carnatic Wars than compared to sailing along the open ocean on a trade ship. And it paid even better. The lack of European deaths didn't mean that the Carnatic Wars were a joke, though. The Marathas, the chief rivals of the Mughals, utilized scorched-earth policies that led to the deaths of at least 400,000 Indian civilians. That violence drew Indians to Calcutta like flame draws moths, for the Marathas were never willing to directly assault any city that was known to be defended by European cannons. As a result, Calcutta's population, which was beneath the control of the EIC, increased by three times as refugees seeking safety flocked to its walls. The competition between the French and English lasted long enough that the two companies were completely transformed into militant organizations, one whose shareholder rivalry meant a continuous escalation of the stakes involved. One rising star of the conflict was Robert Clive. Despite no formal military training, Clive, who was originally a writer, amassed a small fortune in his fights against Indians allied with the French. Clive took to the violence naturally, having been addicted to fighting since he was a mere seven years old. He was the eldest of 13 children to a well-connected noble family. Rather than helping out with his younger siblings, Robert was sent off to live with his aunt in the countryside of England. He was in constant trouble at school, and formed a gang to run a protection racket. It turns out that the experience would guide his actions as an adult in India. His aunt died when he was nine, and he returned to his father's home, but his misbehaving continued, resulting in him transferring schools twice. In what was likely a last-ditch effort to aid his son, Clive's father utilized his political influence to get hired as a company agent for the East India Company. It was during the Carnatic Wars that Clive found his purpose, something that had been lacking for him during his previous stints with the company, during which time he had attempted suicide at least once. In 1755, the EIC received a report that a major fleet filled with French troops destined for their headquarters in Bengal. The report turned out to be categorically false, but that didn't stop their commander, Roger Drake, from illegally strengthening the city walls in preparation. It was around this time that Robert Clive returned for a second round of service to the EIC the Englishman had quickly wasted his previous earnings trying to bribe his way into Parliament. After losing the election, he was humiliated and sailed back to India at the head of a private army of sepoys, which is a term that describes Indian soldiers led by a British officer. His return would only serve to escalate the violence during the EIC's transition from a commercial entity to primarily a military force. The local government of Calcutta was powerless to stop Drake from taking defensive actions to shore up the city from the imagined threat posed by the arrival of the French. Although it lacked upgraded defenses, the burgeoning metropolis had become a cosmopolitan city which mixed Indians and Europeans, as well as Christians, Hindus, and Muslims. Intermarriage was readily accepted, yet there remained de facto segregation, resulting in what was locally known as black town and a white town. The existence of such divisions is troubling, as rulers of the fiefdom cared most about one's ability to produce wealth. One contemporary witness wrote, that the English have no arbitrary dismissal, and every competent person keeps his job until he writes his own request for retirement or resignation. More remarkable still is that they take part in most of the festivals and ceremonies of Muslims and Hindus, mixing with the people. They pay great respect to accomplished scholars of whatever sect. Unable to stop the EIC, the local government of Calcutta turned to the Mughal ruler's grandson, the 23-year-old Siraj Udula. There are quite a few bad guys working for the EIC, among which are certainly Drake and Clive. But Udula's crimes against humanity results in him residing within one of the worst rings of Dante's inferno. His own cousin depicts the man as a serial bisexual rapist and psychopath. His French allies claimed that he was known for his revolting cruelty, as he enjoyed sending his men out to sink ferries full of innocent women and children whom he knew could not swim. The English residents of India had never approached the young man, instead focusing their lobbying efforts on the Mughal's son-in-law. Thus, when Udula ordered the dismantling of Calcutta's walls, Drake flat out refused the imperial order, setting the stage for a conflict which would come about in 1756. That was the year that Udula's grandfather passed away at the advanced age of 81. On the day of his burial, Udula murdered his aunt, seizing all of her money and jewelry. He then targeted his cousin, utilizing an army of 500 elephants to secure his place atop the hierarchy. It was then that he sent his forces against a nearby EIC factory. It apparently wasn't fortified against 500 raging elephants, and thus surrendered unconditionally. That capitulation allowed him to seize quite a bit of European arms, balancing out some of the company's advantage. Now, from a position of strength, he again called for Drake to dismantle all fortifications. Such an action would restore the upper hand to the ruling Mughal Empire. Drake didn't even bother to respond. Abdullah put together a 70,000-man army behind the scenes, which marched an incredible 130 miles in just 10 days, despite the June heat. Drake was caught largely unaware, having not even finished fortifying every portion of Calcutta's walls. Worse, his military forces amounted to just 265 uniformed company men and an untrained militia that consisted of another 250 civilians. His plan was to try to hold out behind the walls until negotiations hammered out an agreement between the two sides. Udula had other plans, firing upon the city on June 16th and crossing the defended Maratha ditch that led into the portion of the city colloquially known as Blacktown. Showcasing their lack of strength as well as their lack of remorse for the native population of India, Drake didn't even lift a finger to halt the looting of Blacktown. As the fires from the bazaars lit up the skies, the EIC's Indian support staff all walked out, defecting to Adula. Two days after the fighting had begun, the company's enemies were slowed down by vicious house-to-house street fighting. Soon, though, the English were forced back to the fort which only had three days of ammunition stored within it. Militia member David Rennie reveals that there were 2,000 women and children behind the walls, trapped with armed men who had gotten quite drunk and therefore mutinous. Worried about the threat from within as much as without, they began the process of loading the women and children onto the boats for their own safety. The full evacuation began the next day after a cannonball burst through the wall of a council meeting. The fort capitulated the next afternoon, and after claiming victory, Abdullah altered the city's name to al after the Prophet Muhammad's son-in-law. It meant Ali's city. Drake, despite his attempt at being the first to flee, was delivered to the Mughal ruler in handcuffs along with 145 surviving company men. Keep in mind that Adula was known to be sadistic. The captives were locked inside a tiny cell known as the Black Hole. Stripped of their clothes and confined to a space that did not allow them a single inch to move resulted in 84% of the prisoners dying during the first night in captivity. Historian Brijan Gupta worked overtime during the 1950s in an attempt to disprove the salacious accounts of the black hole, noting that it is literally impossible to shove 146 grown men into a 14 by 18 space. According to him, the numbers were closer to 64 imprisoned, with 21 surviving the first night. Facts, however, rarely get in the way of a good story, And thus, the original tragic tale was the one that spread throughout the historical record. The tale eventually reached Robert Clive's ears. His three regiments of royal artillery had been originally commissioned to fight the French. Now a different opportunity presented itself, and he shifted his mission to demand restoration of Calcutta. But in all things, the EIC was first and foremost concerned with making money, as Clive demanded extremely lucrative reparations for the company. His ships began to bombard the fort, while his soldiers, sporting new advanced brown-bess muskets, approached via a land route. The new rulers of Calcutta, Hadn't had any time to prepare their defense of a city which they had just overrun. The EIC's large guns pounded the now twice destroyed city. Dalrymple notes that as one man hung a Union Jack from a tree, the full scale of the devastation became apparent. Government House, St. Anne's Church, and the Grand Mansions lining the river were all burned-out shells. Rising jagged from the loot littered riverfront like blackened, shattered teeth from a diseased gum. The wharves were derelict inside the mansions. The gorgeous Georgian furniture, family paintings, and even harpsichords had been burned as firewood. One day after taking back Calcutta, Clive declared war upon Siraj Udula. They targeted the nearby town's defenseless fortifications in order to extract the maximum revenge for what had been done to Calcutta. They scaled the walls of the port city Hugli Bandar at 2 a.m. and proceeded to slaughter the sleeping garrison before proceeding to burn everything in sight. As was to be expected, the slaughter provoked a reaction out of Adula as he quickly raised another army to bring the hammer down once again upon the poor citizens of Calcutta. Clive, however, launched a surprise attack on the newly raised 60,000-man force while they were camped en route to their destination. Fog meant that the action was chaotic, with the emperor having been nearly killed by a wayward bullet. The conditions meant that the advantage was purely in the hands of Robert Clive. Without losing a single man, the EIC forces had succeeded in forcing Abdullah to reckon with his own mortality for the first time. He also had to deal with the sudden loss of 2,000 soldiers. Although he still had all the numbers on his side, the emperor retreated and sent out feelers for peace, signing the Treaty of Alangar four days later. the one-sided agreement granted all of the company's demands. This meant the full restoration of their unique land privileges, as well as their tax-free trading status. Furthermore, they were allowed to maintain their citywide fortifications, as well as permission to make their own mint, which gave them the ability to print their own currency. The only win for the Emperor was that the EIC agreed to keep Roger Drake one of the few survivors of the black hole, far away from India. For that, the EIC was more than happy to agree. After all, his lack of preparations had resulted in the single largest decline in their stock prices. In his place, the victorious Clive was named as the new director of the company. Let me take a moment to discuss Siraj Abdullah’s role in all of this. Clearly, this was the first time that someone had put him in his place. The depictions of the man, from both contemporary European and Indian sources, paint him as a spoiled bully who struck out at those who were weaker than him for nothing more than his own amusement. There is little that is defendable about the East India Company, but it is hard to have any sympathy for a man who regularly dispatched his henchmen on missions designed to kidnap attractive women while they were bathing in a nearby river. Still, a number of sources, the vast majority of which are Indian, have chosen to remember Adula as the last independent ruler of Bengal. To these scholars, he is the only one who had the courage to fight back against the growing power of the EIC, raising the alarm against what was to come. Historian Arun Anand, however, is among those who resist allowing the former emperor to be labeled as a patriot, noting that even his supposed closest friends documented the horrendous crimes of the young man. Having subdued the Mughal threat, Clive proceeded to turn the EIC military forces against the French, as part of an overseas extension of the Seven Years' War, which had just broken out between the European rivals. He stormed the Fort Orleans, utterly destroying the fortification. Dalrymple identifies the significance of the win for us, writing that the capture was a body blow to the entire French presence in India, as the gate to the entire country was thrown open to the English a gate that opened onto the road of glory and riches. Seeking to befriend his bully, Abdullah bequeathed Clive two leopards as a victory present. But the EIC director knew that a loyal emperor was one of the only things better than a cowed emperor. That offer came from Mir Jafar, the paymaster of the Bengal army. He offered the modern equivalent of £325 million for the company's assistance in overthrowing the emperor. The money behind the coup attempt came from the Yager Seth bankers. This is an uncomfortable fact for readers of India's history. While it is possible that Clive might have eventually settled upon a similar course of action on his own, the true originators of the EIC takeover of the subcontinent were wealthy Indian citizens. Dalrymple tells us that this was something quite new to the subcontinent's history. A group of Indian financiers plotting with an international trading corporation to use its own private security force to overthrow a regime they saw threatening the income they earned from the trade with outsiders. This was not part of any imperial British master plan. In fact, the EIC men on the ground were ignoring their strict instructions from London. But seeing opportunities for personal enrichment as well as political and economic gain for the company, they dressed up the conspiracy in colors that they knew would appeal to their masters and presented the coup as if it were primarily aimed at excluding the French from Bengal forever. The final terms, even more in the favor of the EIC than initially offered, were agreed upon on June 4, 1757. On June 13th, Robert Clive accused the emperor of not complying with the Treaty of Allahabad. Not waiting for a reply, the Brit began a march of 3,000 soldiers towards Plassey. Only after he had been on the road for a few days did he suspect that he was being led into a trap. The bankers hadn't yet responded to his repeated requests for more information regarding what he was marching towards, which happened to be an army of 50,000. His military council voted strongly against continuing after the size of the force arrayed against him became known. But fortune favors the brave, and Clive decided to disregard their advice and push on. His decision to carry on with his end of the plot was even more courageous, considering that his supposed ally in the coup, Mir Jafar, was nowhere to be found. Clive had expected them to join their forces before reaching the Emperor, but via messengers, the Banker's man claimed that he would meet him for the first time on the battlefield. No sooner, no later. Before Clive knew it, his men were surrounded by forces that outnumbered them twenty to one. A monsoon rain broke out that made all the difference in the world as the company made sure to keep their fuses dry, while the overconfident Mughals did not. Incorrectly assuming that each side had lost their ability to use their gunpowder weapons, the forces of the Emperor confidently marched forward, only to be immediately repulsed by the EIC's artillery. Seeking to restore morale, Udulla gave the general order for the cavalry to ride into the gaps. But they instead ignored the order, turned away, and rode off. Turns out that Mir Jafar, the coup's ringleader, was placed in charge of the cavalry and had chosen this moment to finally reveal his presence to Robert Clive. Utilizing the power of coin, he had spread around enough of the banker's wealth to ply off the mounted soldiers. Shocked by the betrayal, the Emperor ordered a retreat which soon turned into a rout. At Plassey, Clive did the unthinkable, defeating a 50,000-man army with just 3,000. Money, as it often does, made all the difference in the world. Mir Jafar was elevated to the Peacock Throne but it was the Jaeger Seth Bankers that became the power behind the Emperor, as Adula had left the kingdom bankrupt. The new government ordered assassins to hack the former Emperor to pieces. Jafar's son then proceeded to wipe out all of the women of the Emperor's house, murdering more than 70 innocent ladies in fear that they could produce a son who would represent a future threat to their rule. Only one woman was initially marked for salvation, a woman known far and wide for her beauty. But she too was ultimately executed after passing on an offer of marriage to the new ruler of India by proclaiming that having ridden an elephant before, I cannot agree to ride an ass." For his role in the takeover, Clive was paid the modern-day equivalent of 100 million pounds. Instead of returning home to London and again waste away a fortune, the Englishman stayed to continue his work. He instinctively seemed to know that his actions permanently changed the game. With a loyalist government having risen in power, he oversaw what the British referred to as the shaking of the pagoda tree. It was a period of ruthless looting and asset stripping for the company. Dalrymple tells us that Bengal, the sink into which foreign bullion disappeared before 1757, became, after Plassey, the treasure trove from which vast amounts of wealth were drained without any prospect of return. The East India Company had learned that they had the ability to play kingmaker, Within the next 50 years, they would again exert their power by seizing the Mughal capital of Delhi itself. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowery at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.